and welcome to all of you uh, to our online worship. Uh, we, of course, are disappointed that for those of you who typically gather on the lawn or in your cars outside, uh, we're disappointed that the forecast was such that we had to make that call yesterday, and, uh, but we are glad that you've joined us here today. Remember, we're looking forward to transitioning to in-person services, indoor services on September 27th. So be watching our website, our social media feeds, as well as your email inbox if, uh, if you're on uh, receiving our e-announcements for the details of what, that servi- what those services are going to look like and how you can prepare to be involved. And also remember, we will continue to be streaming uh, our Sunday morning services as well. So if, if that's uh, where you're at because of distance or because of precautions you, you need to take, you can count on that stream, uh, streaming uh, service uh, to continue as well. Well, we have been in uh, the Gospel uh, of John for the last several weeks. And over the last couple of weeks, uh, we did chapter 2. Uh, remember, we began in chapter 2, verse 1, at, at a wedding. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in this uh, place in Galilee known as Cana. Uh, Jesus' mother Mary was there, uh, he was there, and his disciples uh, were invited to the wedding as well. There was a problem, and the problem was uh, the wine was gone and the party wasn't over yet. And so uh, what Jesus, uh, after, after it seemed like maybe he wasn't going to do anything to address the issue, saying it, in effect, it's kind of like this is the wedding's problem, not my problem, Mom, when his, when his mom uh, you know, came to him and shared the problem with him. He ended up doing something. He, he uh, asked uh, the servers to fill some ceremonial washing jars with water and then to ladle some out and to take it to the head waiter. And lo and behold, the, what was, went in as water came out as wine. And we learned from verse 11 in that chapter that Jesus did this. It was the first of his signs. Remember that, that John is, is, uh, uses these signs, uh, in a, in a, and it's, we're going to get actually flow right into it with, with more mention of signs in our text today in chapter 3. It says Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory. He, uh, Fanarau, uh, he, he uh, uncovered himself. He, something which was previously hidden, he revealed in fullness to his disciples, and they believed in him. I, I taught this word a, a couple of times in the, in the last three or four weeks, and the, the word sign, this translated sign in our English Bibles is Simeon, and, and Simeon is, it's an indication, it's a mark, a token, a sign. It's something by which a person or a thing is distinguished from others and is known. And what John is doing in the use of these signs is he is wanting his hearers to understand the true identity of Jesus, something by which he is known and distinguished from others, that he is God in the flesh. So uh, we, in, in our text last week, we saw uh, another mention of that word. Uh, Jesus, it, it tells us, as we looked in the second half of chapter 2, uh, Jesus went to uh, Jerusalem at the time near the Passover, and when he went into the temple, he found some stuff that he did not like. He found people basically uh, exploiting and extorting from the people who had come. Uh, they were people who were selling uh, sacrificial animals as well as money changers uh, who were using the, their clout and their, and their kind of control to be able to uh, bilk more money uh, from the people who were coming. Jesus didn't like that, and, and Scripture says that he, he made a, basically a whip of cords. He drove them all out. And after that happened, the Jews who were there said to him in verse 18, uh, what sign, same word, Simeon, what distinguishes you? What gives you the right, basically, uh, for doing these things? And Jesus said the sign that he was going to give was, was that uh, if they destroyed the temple, 
that he would raise it up in three days. Now, he is in the physical temple, but he's not speaking of the structure. He's not speaking of that, that, that house of worship, but then instead, he was referring to himself. And later, after he died and he was resurrected, John tells us that his disciples remembered that he said that, and they believed in the word that it was true. Well, Verse 23 tells us that not only did Jesus uh, indicate that was a sign of his, of his authority to cleanse the temple, but in verse 23, we see that while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, again, same word, Simeon, the signs that he was doing. Interestingly enough, though, John says that even though they believed in Jesus, he didn't believe in them. <laughs> and, and, and when he, when he, when he uh, kind of unpack that, it basically meant that yet it, w- it wasn't like John was discrediting the, the signs that Jesus was doing, because he's using those signs to show who Jesus is. But John seems to indicate that it's more than believing in a miracle or a sign. It's, there's something more than that to become a Jesus follower. And very interestingly enough, as we flip the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3, what it means to become a Jesus follower, what that's all about, is what our text is going to be. So today, we're going to be looking at John 3, the first 21 verses. It's a familiar passage, maybe, to, to some of you. Probably has the most well-known verse uh, in the entire Bible uh, in, in, within it, John three sixteen. So we're going to look, look at that passage together, and I'm going to begin uh, just by looking at the very first verse. So look at it. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, so if you want to have your version, your device open to that particular uh, translation, Uh, That's great, or you can just follow along in the one that you prefer. John 3, 1, it says, There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we learn some things here about this person who is coming to Jesus. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler ruler of the Jews. First, he was a Pharisee. In in saying that he was a Pharisee, basically what that identified him as is he he was a Jew who lived by the absolute strictest possible rules. It seems that the Pharisees were a sect of within Judaism that, were, that was created when uh, there, there was another sect known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees seemed to be more the high priestly sort of, of sect, and the Pharisees began kind of in, in contradiction to them, and they, be, they were made up more of just like what maybe you would call lay people and scribes. They weren't necessarily professional clergymen, but they had this very strict adherence to the, to all, in, in all possible ways to the rules. Enlisting him as a ruler of the Jews, it seems that Nicodemus is most likely very highly educated, and as, as a highly edu- educated ruler, he probably would have been well-to-do. Maybe we would call him an aristocrat. Now, ironically, there is actually history, extra-biblical history tells us, there was a wealthy and prominent Nicodemus who lived in Jerusalem at this time, and perhaps that is the very man that's in this story, this Nicodemus from Jerusalem, who, was, uh, who came uh, to see Jesus, as we'll see, see in just a second. We can't say that with definitiveness, but it seems uh, kind of a, a, a good hypothesis to think that that prominent man, that prominent wealthy ruling class Nicodemus that lived in Jerusalem at this same time is probably the one that we speak of here in verse 1. So pick it up then, look in verse 2, and let's see what happens. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs. There's that word again, Simeon, one of John's favorite words in these first two or three chapters of his Gospels. He says, for no one could perform these signs, and you do, unless God were with him. Now, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. There's probably two main reasons why he would have come to him at night. Number one, for the working class uh, leaders in, in, uh, in Judaism, they would have had their normal jobs during the day, and so the nighttime was the time that they were able to study. Probably that's not the case for Nicodemus. Because of his uh, aristocratic class, because of his wealth, because of the fact that he was a well-to-do ruler, most likely Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night because he wants to do it under the cover of night. He doesn't really want to be seen coming to Jesus. So he comes to him, he acknowledges him as a teacher, that's his greeting rabbi, and he says, listen, we know that you are a teacher who has, that you've had to come from God. Now, is Nicodemus speaking on behalf of all the Pharisees? No. Is, he, is it kind of a collective we when he really means me? Maybe that's the case. But he's saying, listen, me and maybe a few, of, a few others of us Pharisees, we recognize that you have to have come from God because no one else could be doing the things that you're doing unless God were with him. And what Jesus is going to do right now, remember, at the end of chapter 2, we saw that there were people who believed in the signs, Right? But it says Jesus didn't believe in them. They believed in the signs, but they really didn't believe in, in the, and, and they, they were wowed by that. But it didn't seem, didn't seem to motivate them to surrender their life to Jesus. So now when Jesus hears this statement, listen, Rabbi, these signs that you're doing, you've got to be from God because they're so incredible. They're so remarkable. We really haven't seen anything else like it. Jesus is going to then use this as an opportunity, and John's going to use this as an opportunity to begin to show us what it is, what it really means to become a follower of Jesus. Jesus is going to take this interest that Nicodemus has. Obviously, Nicodemus is intrigued by Jesus. He's witnessed these signs. He's heard about some of the others, maybe from some of his friends or from from some of his neighbors or some of his fellow Pharisees, and he's like, I've got to find out what this guy's about. He didn't come to him saying, listen, I want to become one of your followers. He's just saying, there's something different about you. And he maybe wants to get to know him a little bit better. And so what Jesus is going to do, and what John's going to do as he tells the story, is he's going to use uh, four, like, kind of like four illustrations, four little object lessons, four pictures. So there are going to be four words for you to remember today, and then we're going to learn something from each of those words. And the first of those words is birth. Birth. Jesus says in verse 3, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the the kingdom of God. The word that we translate this into English, born again, literally it means born from above. And so by, uh, by inference, this was a roundabout expression by the Jews of saying from God. From above meant from God, and that the, the phrase can also be construed as reborn, and that's how we get our translation here in English of born again. So Jesus is saying, and, and, and truly I tell you, unless someone is born from above, born from God, reborn, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus hears this, and he, and he says, well now wait a second, how can anyone, in verse 4, how can anyone be born when he is old? 
Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Well, of course not, right? The answer to that rhetorical question, or maybe it was a literal question from Nicodemus, is, is no. How can someone be, be, be born again? How can, and, and, and the interesting thing is that Nicodemus should have kind of had a little bit of understanding about this, about this, uh, this, uh, this idea of being, of being born again, Jesus, or being born from above. Jesus continues in verse 5. He says, truly I tell you, Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, again, like I said, Nicodemus should have had a little bit of an understanding when Jesus was talking about being born from above or born from God. He should have had a little bit of understanding about what that meant because actually Jewish people referred to Gentile converts when, when Gentile people converted to Judaism, uh, the Jews referred to them as if they were newborn children. They had life anew. And so they themselves used that phrase of new life, of being as a, as a newborn child again. And that's exactly, and Jesus may be thinking that Nicodemus would have understood that, uses this imagery to tell him, this is what is happening in, in, in my ministry. This is what my ministry is going to be about. It's about someone getting new life, being born from above, being born from God. He uses this phrase, born of the water and the spirit. Some, some suggest that the born of the water is an allusion to baptism, especially with its connection to the bapti- baptism of those Gentile converts when they came into Judaism. It could mean that. It could also be a reference to one's natural birth. Born of the water, you, you must be born of the water, and born of the Spirit, that's your supernatural birth. If we, if we see, uh, take it in that regard, it seems like John is using some parallelism here. Born of the water and the Spirit kind of goes right along with being born of the flesh and born of the Spirit. So regardless of the two, the, the, the point that Jesus is making here, everyone has a first birth, a natural birth. And then there is this supernatural second birth. And though, though Nicodemus would have, should have understood exactly what that meant, he didn't. And so Jesus says, well, let's go to picture number two. And then picture number two, or illustration number two, is that of the wind, of the wind. Jesus says in verse eight, the wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound. But you don't, you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, hearkening back to what he just said. Now, the word both in Hebrew and Greek that's translated wind in our, in our translation can also be translated spirit for both the Hebrew and the Greek. And so it's clear that Jesus is indicating, and again, trying to help uh, Nicodemus to understand that this is something that is supernatural, that is a work of the Spirit. It also seems that what Jesus may be, uh, is, maybe is referring to is a, is a passage of scripture from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. There the prophet says, as, as uh, God is speaking through the prophet to his nation Israel, he says, them, he says to them this in verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
So this work of the Spirit that, is, that God wants to bring about in his people that Jesus is trying to usher in, this is what Jesus is referring to when he says, the wind blows where it, where it pleases, and you, you hear its sound, but you, you don't really know where, it, where it's come from, where it comes from, or where it is going. But so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As we're thinking about what it means to be born again or born of the Spirit, what the, the point that I would su- suggest to you that the, the wind imagery is trying to make is there is a mystery about it. We can't diagram, we can't fully or adequately explain how it is that those of us who have received Jesus by faith have new life that we have been born from above, that we are what Paul calls a new creation. Well, but we believe it by faith. There is a certain mystery to transformation. We can't, again, we can't diagram it or explain it in a way that we, we would, in the, in the way that we would solve a math problem or the way that we would wor- wor- work through some uh, other sort of troubleshooting um, uh, situation. Instead, there's a certain mystery about it because it is the work of the Spirit. And so what, we, what, we, what Jesus is beginning to intrigue uh, Nicodemus with is this second birth and the fact that though it is mysterious, it is something that he wants to usher in. And again, just like when uh, Nicodemus heard Jesus talk about being born again, he said, well, wait a second, how can this be? He says the very next, uh, kind of the very same thing in verses nine and ten, uh, verse, verse 9 in reaction to the imagery of the wind. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And John is, uh, hopefully you've been able to pick up, if you've been uh, attending or tuning in to these services and you've been interacting with the Gospel of John, John is a fabulous writer. And John is using a little bit of irony here as a literary device in this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, uh, kind of his denseness makes him the foil for Jesus, who is the revealer. And that's, a, that's an ancient literary device to kind of make one particular person the foil and, and the other person the hero. And that's exactly what, what John is doing here. Look at Jesus' response to him. He says, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Are you a teacher of God's people and you don't understand what it means to be born from above? Even though you refer to the Gentiles as being newborn babies, as if they had a second birth? Are you a teacher of the, uh, of the Israelites and you don't understand the work of the Holy Spirit, what God promised to do? Even, the, even though there's a mystery about it, you don't see where it comes from, you don't see where it's going, it's happening. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Well, that reality of, of this, this the, the irony around, again, Nicodemus being interested, but also being blinded, brings up that aspect that we mentioned a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago about the necessity and the power of revelation. Nicodemus needs to have his eyes opened. Remember, Jesus revealed, Venerao, he revealed himself, he revealed his glory to his disciples, and upon that revelation, they believed in him. But Nicodemus is still walking around in darkness. We're going to see that a little bit more as we get down to the end. The third image, the third picture, is that of a snake. After Jesus has an interaction, interaction with, 
with, uh, with Nicodemus about uh, the, the one who can testify about heaven. And in verses 11 through 13, before we get to the snake, Jesus kind of talks with Nicodemus about, about uh, what's, what's happening and, and the fact that he establishes himself excuse me, as a witness, as one who can give testimony about heaven. Only an eyewitness can testify, uh, testify about something. And so because of that, Jesus is, is saying that I have eyewitness evidence of what heaven is because that's where I've come from. And so as he descends, he then is going to talk about what he came to do. So the birth, the wind, and now the third imagery, the third picture is the snake. Picking it up in verse 14 and 15, Jesus says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who, be- who believes in him may have eternal life. Do you see how Jesus is building the picture of salvation, building the picture of what it means to actually become one of his followers? Not just someone who's wowed by his signs, but using that place where someone is wowed by the signs to help them to understand that God wants them to be a new creation, born again. That happens through the work of the Spirit, even though it's mysterious and we can't quite understand it. And the way in which that's going to happen is Jesus is going to be lifted up just as a particular, a special kind of snake was lifted up in the wilderness. Now, the context of this is found in Numbers chapter 21. So if you want to kind of turn to that in your Bible, or you can check it out on your own at, uh, later on this week. In Numbers chapter 21, what, what has happened is, basically Israel, uh, just kind of a, a quick recap of, of where they're at in their history. So they left Egypt under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Uh, they were headed into the promised land. And uh, right before they were going to enter into the promised land, they sent some spies to check out the land. And when the spies came back, the spies said, man, the land looks amazing. It looks beautiful. But their cities are well fortified. There are giants living in the land. And I don't know that we can do this. Even though God had promised them that that land was theirs when they left Egypt and they crossed the sea in a miraculous way and they, took, and, and they were ready to ha- head into the land of Canaan, even, even though he had promised them that it would be theirs, fear got the best of them and they're like, I, I don't know. Two guys stood up, Caleb and Joshua, and said, absolutely, we got to go in. God has promised us this. They didn't like listen to Caleb and Joshua. The majority opinion uh, ruled and so because of that, God promised that none of those people who were alive at that particular time, that entire generation, would die in the wilderness before they entered into the promised land, except for Caleb and Joshua, who were the ones who were faithful to the thing that he had promised that he would give to them. So now they're in the wilderness, and they're wandering around, kind of aimlessly in a way. They're going to be wandering out there for, for 40 years so that that entire generation can literally can die off. Well, God provides for them food. God provides for them water. God provides for them in, in, in so many ways, but they're still not happy. And so in verse 21, uh, we, we find, or ver, I'm sorry, verse 4, we, uh, for chapter 21, verse 4, we find that they're traveling from Mount Hor along to the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. They're going around Edom because Edom wouldn't let them pass through and said, if you try to pass through here, they'd already been around Edom once. And even though they were kind of related to Edom, uh, they said uh, Edom wouldn't let them pass through, and so they, they got to go around Edom. And so as they do that, It says in verse 5 that they spoke against God and against Moses, that is the people of Israel. 
And they said to him, why have you brought us out of, the, uh, out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we, and we detest this miserable food. In other words, all the stuff that we complain about, right? When things get tough. And they're, they're just like, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We, we, we should have stayed in Egypt. At least we had good food to eat. We might have been slaves of, of, of the Pharaoh. But at least we had plenty of food to eat and everything else. Why did you bring us out? Well, God is... is, is um, miffed, to say the least, at their grumbling. And so in verse 9, we see the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Pretty graphic picture. So then the people come back to Moses. They came to Moses and said, they're grumbling and complaining about the food. And they would complain about so many things through that entire journey to Moses. They come back to him then in verse 7 and say, we, sin, we have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. In verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So when Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man may be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. He's saying in the same way that those people were bitten by a venomous snake and if nothing happened, they would die. God provided them a way to be healed. He provided them a way to be healed of that venomous snake bite. Well, I would suggest to you that every one of us who are human beings have a venomous snake bite. That venomous snake bite is called our sinful nature. And we act on that sinful nature. That's what we know to do. That's really all we know to do. It's not that we never do anything right or kind or good or nice and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, our nature is sinful. And so we have been, as a, as a, as a humanity in general, we are people who have, who, have, who have received this bite of our sin nature. And the only way that we can be healed is that in the same way that that bronze snake was lifted up, Jesus would be lifted up and on a cross. And in his death, when we look to him, what did Jesus say? Everyone who believes in him, everyone who looks up, not to a snake on a pole, but to a man on a cross, they will have eternal life. They will be healed from that venomous snake bite. He goes on to talk a little bit more about the heart of God in verses 16 and 17 when Jesus says, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, won't die. We won't die of that snake bite of sin, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He continues and kind of wraps up this thought in verses 18 and 19 when Jesus says, anyone who believes in him, anyone who looks to that cross and makes that the central focus of their life and receives by faith the, the sacrificial work, the sacrificial shed blood of Christ on the cross to cleanse them from their sin. Anyone who believes in him in that way, Jesus says, is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already be condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. I would hazard a guess to say Paul at some point was exposed to these words of Jesus. 
Because we find when Paul writes to the Roman Christians in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These signs you're doing, teacher, you've got to be from God. Jesus takes that moment and he says, let me tell you really what my ministry is all about. I'm using these signs to show you something that's very important. You must be born from above. What? Yeah, just like the wind blows and you see, it, see its effects and you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. That's what happens when someone's born of the Spirit. Yes, it's mysterious, but it's supernatural and it's real. And the way, is, the way that happens is I'm going to be lifted up on a cross in the same way that a snake was lifted up for our forefathers in the desert so that they could be healed from that bite. And then Jesus is going to bring it full circle. It's, a, it's an ancient, ancient literary device. Uh, bracketing off a, a passage by starting and stopping on the same place or same point or same idea is oftentimes used by ancient writers. And John's going to do that. Remember, when did Jesus uh, get this visit from Nicodemus? At night. And so the last, in, in the dark, right? And so this last image, this last picture, is this last uh, illustration that Jesus is going to use is light versus darkness. This is the judgment, Jesus says in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light, speaking of himself. John identified him as the light, if you remember, back in chapter 1. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than their light because their deeds were evil. Many, many, many ancient texts often contrast light and darkness as good and evil, just as John does here. And Jesus, knowing that's such a common understanding of good and evil, light and darkness, he is using that to identify what the response is. The light has come into the world, and, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The darkness, the darkness came, the light came into the world. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, right? But to those who did receive him, John says in one, in chapter one, those who did receive him, they gave, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Look at verses 20 and 21 as Jesus is wrapping up this interaction uh, with Nicodemus. He says, for everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it. When, when, when the light of Christ shines in our life and we're exposed for who we actually are, that can be at times be painful. That can be, that can be harsh. Think of that time when I can remember times when, when I wouldn't get up for school and it was like the first time, the second time, the third time my parents would try to get me up. Then they went to that old trick that parents sometimes do. Flip the light on, right? And it's like, oh, that blinding light. I hated that. Everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Four pictures. Birth. Jesus is all about new life. The wind. There's a mystery to the work of the Spirit to bringing about this new birth. It's not it's not somehow a, a second natural birth. 
but it's a second birth that is supernatural. It's from above, and it's the work of God's Spirit in our lives, just as he alluded to that he would do through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. The snake says the way in which that's going to happen is through Jesus' death. Through his sacrificial death, we can be born of the Spirit. We can have that mysterious second birth. And it's all about whether or not we are going to be willing with the image of the light and darkness to walk in the truth or we're going to walk in the darkness. That's the choice you have to make today. That's the most important commitment or decision that any human being ever makes in their entire life. Much more important than the career that they pursue. I would suggest to you much more important than the spouse they choose to marry or not marry. How many kids they might have. Where they might live. How they spend their money. How they use their time. How do we respond to the one who comes to us and says, you must be born again by the work of my Holy Spirit. The way in which that second birth happens is to believe in the one who is lifted up in death that you might have life. Will you walk in the light of life or will you continue to stumble around in the darkness of self and sin? That's the clarion call that Jesus is making to each one of us today. Maybe like Nicodemus, you have some interest. Maybe you're intrigued with this rabbi named Jesus. Maybe today is the day for for you to move from being intrigued by him to becoming a follower of him. As we often mention in our online services, There are ways that you can talk to one of us, uh, our ministry staff here at Calvary, by clicking on the link, cbcjoy.org slash talk. Uh, When you click on the link, it should be dropping into your feed right now. Uh, That will take you out into a conversation with, again, with one of the staff persons here at Calvary. And if you have questions, if you're intrigued, or if if today's the day that you'd like uh, to commit your life to Christ, to receive by faith his sacrificial work so that you might be born again, that you might have that new life that comes from being born of the Spirit, that you might begin to walk in the light of life, not in the darkness of death and sin. And click on that link. If something's urging you to click on it, I would just hazard a guess to say it perhaps is the Holy Spirit that's drawing you to himself. God is using this time to draw you to himself so that you might have that new life in Jesus. Our worship team is going to lead us in a couple of songs. And as they do that again, please feel free to take advantage of that opportunity to respond to today's message or to ask someone questions about what it means to be a follower of his. I'm going to pray, and then Emma, Ben, and the rest are going to come up and lead us in those closing songs. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that as we have heard this incredible interaction between this ruling Jew and this rabbi named Jesus. As we've seen the truth, Lord, that comes from it, I pray that we would walk in it. I pray that those, Lord, who are are watching today, who are considering 
uh, surrendering their life to you. That God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would draw them into that place. Help them to take that, Lord, that last step of faith and trust and belief in the one who is here to give them not condemnation, not death, but new life, a new identity, a new purpose, a new mission, a new hope of eternal glory with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.